Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Carol serves as the chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging. She is a nationally known gerontologist and is executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And once again, Carol, we are looking forward to a great guest joining us in just a couple of moments. Yes, we have um, a special guest, Dr. Mario Siervo, who is the medical director of the WellMed Clinics in Miami, and those clinics are new to WellMed. Um, they're established uh, in my, the Miami area, uh, and he's delightful. We had the opportunity to meet him last week when he was in San Antonio, and so nice to you know, get another a professional from the Florida side of WellMed. And he's going to talk a bit about medications and uh, following the protocol, making sure you take them, et cetera. We'll talk to him in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I, I was curious to uh, ask you a little bit about uh, something that you saw in the news, and, and that is uh, sleep and colds. If you don't get a lot of sleep, will you get a cold? Well, that's a very good question, and... and um Someone asked the New York Times that very question, and they said, you know, there's there's plenty of evidence that shows the link between, you know, poor sleep and other chronic illnesses like diabetes and heart disease, but very few good clinical trials where they've tested the science between sleep and respiratory problems. So there was a recent study in the journal Sleep um, that reported that adults who slept less than five hours a night uh, were four times more likely to catch a cold than those to than those that who had slept at least seven hours. It's a big number. Four, four times. Four times is higher. But, but now listen to the study, though. This is what really interested me. So you know, it, it, the trial they actually had volunteers and they gave, they sprayed the cold <laughs> virus. In, you know, like you do a nose spray, a nasal spray, only knowing, I mean, who's going to volunteer for this? Yes, please spray, you know, cold virus directly in my nose. And some of them, you know, then they had them self-report their sleep hours. Uh, and the, the people that slept less um, had nearly three, they were three times more likely to catch cold wow. after this exposure to the virus than those who had eight hours or more. So three to four times higher just by getting a good night's sleep. You'd think if they know what a flu, a cold virus looks like and they can spray it in your nose, they'd find a cure. Yeah, really, really. Well, you know, the other question, is, it's not a cold, but other respiratory problems, like what about pneumonia? So there was a huge study, 60,000 women. Wow. Um, and they found that women who slept five hours or less, again, there's that magic five hours, were more likely to develop pneumonia, but oddly enough, those that slept nine hours or more were equally likely to catch pneumonia. So too much sleep, oh. and, and that actually may be the laying down for that long of a period gives the bacteria a chance to, you know, in your fester, night, fester in your lungs, in your sinus cavities. Um, so, the, you know, the scientists don't really know how sleep 
fights infections. But we've talked about this before, that sleep is is critical to keeping your immune system strong and that sleep deprivation. You know, there's studies that actually show if you get like the flu shot and vaccinations, it, you actually, it weakens their effectiveness just by not getting enough sleep. Wow. So again, the sleep is very, very important. But I don't recommend the whole spraying uh, cold virus no, up your No, I'm not. I wouldn't go for that. <laughs> not volunteer. You, not you at would, all. You would have to pay me a lot to be a volunteer in that test. A lot of studies as well uh, on a subject. A lot of people say, you know, if I drink coffee, I, I end up with kind of a fast, irregular heartbeat. Is there a correlation, coffee and heartbeat? Well, you know, people that have a uh, rapid heartbeat have a problem, you know, and it's usually not fatal, but they have some arrhythmia. And they're often told to give up caffeine. And so, again, from the New York Times... Uh, was reporting a study in the Journal of the American Heart Association where they looked at um, 1,300 patients, all with irregular heartbeats where they, you know, they sped up at times. And then they, they measured them. They had, what was it? It was for, so it was coffee, tea, and chocolate. So they had caffeine intake over a year, 24 hours on a, a heart monitor. And there was no difference in the incidence of the irregular heartbeat for the caffeine drinkers versus the non-caffeine drinkers. Wow. So they're saying maybe um, if caffeine affects you greatly, that maybe you need to cut down on the caffeine or not use it um, if it causes your heart to speed up and it's uncomfortable. But it may not be that you need to stop the caffeine if you develop a rapid heartbeat uh, because it doesn't really there's make no any, correlation. There's no correlation. It may not make any difference. Check with your doctor, please. We're not medical doctors. Check with your doctor. I'd go for the chocolate. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. Cho- any of those would be exactly. fine with me. The coffee, tea, or the chocolate. And then, if if you take a look at, by the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. I uh, want to talk a bit about what is the fantasy of of a whole lot of folks. You know, myself included. I'm 73. We've got tiny little kids. Uh, uh, the twins turn three in May, and Reagan turns five come next September. I've got a long way to go to see him graduate high school, college, med school, doctor, oh, et cetera. Wow. Such plans. Yes. Such plans. So is healthy aging a pipe dream? Well, again, this was a... a I don't know a, that I want... Do I want the answer? The, well, the answer is kind of interesting. So Jane Brody, who writes for the New York Times, uh, had a, a long article recently on that dream of healthy aging. And what they're talking about, and I, and I mentioned this last year when I came back from the Healthy Aging Summit in Washington, D.C., that, you know, the this approach to, to healthy aging um, can be, might be a reality, and it, and it could save so much money in this country that if you c- could reduce the aging process, keep people from aging as quickly by 20%, you know, they could save $7 trillion because aging is the common denominator in so many illnesses. So rather than fighting each disease individually, fighting diabetes, fighting heart disease, fighting cancer, fighting Alzheimer's disease, if they can slow aging and stop aging process, that fountain of youth, then you're not going to get those diseases because the risk factor is aging. All right, I'm ready. So so all of that, yeah, it sounds pretty good, but, but then how do you do it? So get this. So they're they're looking at different drugs 
to see what can reduce the aging process or slow it down. One of the drugs they're looking at, and you may have heard of this one because it's very common, is metformin. Yes. Which is a diabetes drug. um, And why they're looking at it is it's incredibly cheap. It's about two cents a pill. It's very, very common. It has 60 years of safe use in this country. But what they found is that there's evidence suggesting that in addition to the diabetes, it also protects against cardiovascular disease, cancer, and possibly even cognitive impairment. So they're trying to raise $50 million to do a study to test metformin um, against multiple diseases instead of against just the one disease, and specifically against the aging process. While we're waiting, why don't we all take it? Well, they did mention that in the article as well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, that we don't want to jump on the bandwagon against any of those. And, And another drug that they're looking at that has been the most successful that's been tested even here at the University of Texas Health Science Center, San Antonio, they've been testing rapamycin, um, in mice, and that's the one I a few months ago I was talking about uh, from the summit, where you had two mice, equivalent of a hundred year old mice, and mouse on rapamycin, fur good fur, sleek coat, nice and round, looked healthy, and you know he lived in good health right up to a hundred years, and then boom, died very quickly. So that's called the compression of morbidity, where you squeeze you know, the bad, unhealthy years into the shortest amount of time, and then you have a rapid decline and you're gone. You know, 100-year-old mouse without the rapamycin, you know, he was kind of skinny, his hair looked terrible, he was, you know, really frail looking, and he had been sick for a long time. So In mouse years. In mouse years. Um, and, and they've got to test this in humans. Hmm. Uh, what we have to watch out uh, is we don't want to take this into our own hands. Like we don't want to start taking mega doses of growth hormones or, you know, other home remedies or things that they're marketing to you. Right. Because lots of people want to try to make money into making you believe they can reverse aging. None of this is on the market yet. None of this is being prescribed yet for those purposes. Isn't so, there a... Uh, a round worm or one of those worms that doesn't age either that just goes on forever. There, yeah, there are. And yeah. do you know that? And do you know that jellyfish live forever. What about naked mole rats? No, naked mole rats. They do that. They are like the worms you're you're talking about, yeah. where they live very old and then they die. Very, die, and and it's just boom, rapid decline and die. Which is everybody's kind of that's the best of all possible worlds. So I guess the bottom line in this is that there is research going on to try to reverse or slow aging to cure multiple diseases or delay them. We're going to be talking in just a couple of moments with Dr. Mario Siervo, who is the medical director in Miami for WellMed. And one of the things he's going to be talking about is taking medication and related issues. So if I were to say to you, Carol Zerniel, knit one, pearl two. I would know you're actually talking about knitting. Um, And this was another Jane Brody column. We've had Jane on the show in the past. um, That she was talking about the health benefits of knitting, which may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you think of knitting. I was thinking of a nice sweater. You were thinking, you know, yawn. She, She was invited to join a knitting club, and she thought, oh, my gosh, that sounds dreadful. But it was at a time she didn't usually do anything, and it was close to her house, and she ended up signing up and just absolutely loved it. And knitting is making a resurgence. The Craft um, Yarn Council um, has estimated now that one-third of women ages 25 to 35 are now knitting. There's a, People want to rediscover some of those lost 
crafts and arts wow. um, that maybe their grandmothers did that kind of went out of fashion. And even men are doing it. I know that when my boys were younger, I taught them to cross-stitch. Uh, and, huh. it, and, and what they're finding is that by sitting and knitting, it keeps you in the now. Your hands are busy. Your mind is calm. What does that sound like when your mind is calm and you're doing an activity? Meditation. It has the same stress reduction abilities as meditation or yoga. Yes. So for some people, thinking about meditation is just too far eastern. It's too complicated. But knitting is something tangible. They're also using knitting to help people who have smoking problems because if you're knitting, you can't be smoking a cigarette. Weight loss, if you're knitting, you're not eating. So I would just say to you that if you've got some stress, you've got some other issues, you might think about knitting. And and at the end of it, what do you have? You have sweaters, you have socks, you have hats, you have things you can donate, you know, to the neonatal unit or to a nursing home or give to a loved one. Knitting. There you go. I'm going to throw out a name that only our technical director, Robin Ruiz, will remember in this studio. Roosevelt Greer. Former NFL player. Rosie Greer, yes. Played for the Rams. He used to crochet on flights. I do remember him talking about that. That was huge. Huge, huge. And he'd be there crocheting. I love it. He was ahead of his time. That's right. Up next, speaking of being ahead of his time, we're going to talk with Dr. Mario Siervo in Miami. He is the WellMed Medical Director for WellMed Clinics down there. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on 930 AM, The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal? to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Well, as we kept promising, we're delighted to welcome on board Caregiver SOS on air, Dr. Mario Siervo, who is the medical director for WellMed in Miami, Florida. I recently joined WellMed about five months ago, and we're really pleased to have him on. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, Dr. Servio, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Carol, for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you here. And I know one of the uh, issues that you face as a provider, and I'm sure it's true of physicians everywhere, but maybe especially among physicians serving seniors, is adherence to medication, following a protocol, taking the drugs you need to take, uh, and not uh, mixing, matching, and, uh, well, you know the rest. Yes, you're right, Ron. Um, One of the biggest issues here, uh, not only in my community, but I think in, in all of the United States, is the medication, not only adherence of uh, of the patient, uh, but also um, having the family involved with uh, with the patient's um, medication adherence, and and I think that's a prime issue 
that we're all having, all the physicians are facing. And I think it's an issue that the family members, too, are facing because they're, they're left out alone with their loved ones. And, uh, you know, you have to really think to yourself, okay, should I give these medications all at once? Should I spread them out? What color is this one? What color is that one? Um, you know, and, and they, it, it really brings out a lot of questions that, uh, that the family members will have. So when you say adherence, what do you mean by that? I mean, you know, there's medications are usually given in a, with a, a certain dose, and it's also given um, uh, with a certain amount of time in between a medication. So let's say, uh, you know, you give a medication and you say you have to take it twice a day. And, uh, you know, we've, we've really had um, a, a really uh, big problem with, um, with some of the family members understanding that, the patients themselves understanding that a medication needs to be given twice a day versus once a day. Um, some medications are even given when the patient needs it, which in the medical term it's called PRN, uh, and that is only given when the patient exhibits certain signs or, or has certain actions going on, that medication will be given. So those three, you know, things are, are really um, uh, a problem nowadays. Now, one of the issues that uh, I'm sure uh, many of the providers in Miami and elsewhere face uh, is something the Health Collaborative here in Bear County, Texas, talks about, and that's medical literacy, that uh, you may think your patient is understanding what you're saying, you're prescribing a medication, but the reality is they don't understand. Correct. No, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. And, of course, you know, the, the local pharmacies are always um, there to, to try to help. The pharmacist, if you have any questions, the pharmacist is always there to help. But believe it or not, I mean, I'm, I'm part of it, too. I, I don't go and ask. And a lot of, you know, my parents don't go and ask. Even though they might have a question, they say, you know, they think that they might know or they're maybe too embarrassed to ask the pharmacist how to take the medication, or they're even embarrassed to tell the physician when the physician is telling them, they're embarrassed to say, no, I didn't get it. Uh, can you repeat that? Or I don't understand. Um, and uh, it's, it's very important, I think, Ron, that a family member, especially in the elderly population and uh, in the Latin community especially, it's important that a family member tries to go to every uh, physician visit with their loved ones. So there's two, you know, there's four ears, there's two people to listen to the instructions. Well, I think that you just made two really important points. Uh, number one, uh, the idea of having a caregiver, having a family member go to that appointment, you know, because it is hard. If you're the older person and you're sick or you're frail or you have bad hearing or whatever's going on, it is always good to have, to be able to check and say, did you hear him say this? I heard him say that. Um, and just compare notes or have somebody, you know, my sister will often go with my mother to her, her appointments and she will write down literally verbatim everything that the physician says. Um, And and just to make sure that she's got it and then repeat back to the physician. I heard you tell me we need to take this medication twice a day um, unless she becomes anxious, in which case we can increase the dose to three times a day. Correct, Karen. Something important, you know, and I always stress to uh, to to my patients is what's great, you know, for WellMed is. They give us an ample amount of time to be in front of the patient, in front of the, uh, in front of their family members, to really discuss these medications and answer all the questions. But there is some other areas that 
they don't. You know, the, the physician only has 15 minutes, maybe 10 minutes with the patient. So imagine those patients and that family member trying to get all the instructions written down in 10 or 15 minutes while the doctor is thinking about his next patient. What about tape recording that session? Almost everybody's got a smartphone now that uh, that has a recorder. Uh, it's simple to simply click that on, uh, and you're going to get what the physician is saying. That's an excellent point, Ron. I mean, everybody has now a cell phone. Uh, at least the family members pretty much all do. I've seen a, most of my patients even have it. And and uh, recording that, that quick conversation, maybe you could tell the physician, uh, can you please just, uh, you know, repeat the medication portion and, and have him just dictate it into that recorder is, uh, is an excellent idea. So that would make you nervous if I said, do you mind if I record, you know, our visit? You as a physician. I would not, I would not be nervous, but I could see other physicians, yes, being nervous if they are uh, getting their, all their clinic time recorded. I would see, so, I, I could see some physicians, some of my colleagues being a little nervous about so maybe, it. So maybe, so maybe a good point would be to ask the physician if you could record the it, instructions as you're leaving the office or the medication instructions. Cor- correct. Yeah. Just that, so that you're recording you know, that. that. One minute recorder, 30 seconds, just tell me, hey, can you just repeat the medications and how I'm supposed to take them? Right. I think that's very straightforward. It's very, simple to do on the physician part, and uh, I think that's an excellent idea. We're talking with the medical director for WellMed Clinics in Miami, Dr. Mario Siervo. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. What about mixing? It's one thing with the prescription drugs that uh, uh, you may be prescribing. Uh, a lot of folks more and more are taking over-the-counter preparations, supplements, and well, or even, you know, um, home remedies, you know, in some cultures they may have, you know, traditions. This is what we, we do, um, mm-hmm. you know, in particular when somebody has a cold or the flu or whatever. So even so over-the-counter and other alternative medicines and remedies that they may be traditionally use. Yeah, that's an, another great point, Carol. Uh, you know, especially here, you know, I, I'm from, I have a Latin background and, and you know, my mother and, and I know my patients, uh, they all have their home remedies. And some of these home remedies are, are great, and but some could actually interfere with the medications that they're taking. So you really want to discuss with your with your uh, doctor which home remedies you usually use, even vitamins, you know, uh, over the counter, which vitamins you use um, to make sure that there's nothing that might um, interfere with the, with the actual prescription medication. Now, when patients come to see you, uh, I know that's true here. I'm a well-met patient in San Antonio, Texas, uh, and, and my uh, doctor's office always asks me to bring everything I'm taking uh, mm-hmm. in, in a little paper bag, and they check it off, whether it's prescribed, over-the-counter, supplements, what have you. Do you do that in Miami? Yes, we do. We do, and, and uh, it's very important because, uh, you know, you might think, hey, I'm taking a baby aspirin. That doesn't mean anything. You know, everybody does that. Or I'm taking, uh, you know, something else, uh, uh, some vitamin that, that is over the counter. So you f- really feel that it's not harmful. But uh, there are some medications that, that are prescribed that could interfere, you know, or vice versa. They could interfere with it. With the absorption of the medication, that's one thing. With the uh, effectiveness of the medication, so it's good to bring everything, you, even, even if you think it's, uh, it's nonsense. How, how do you keep track of all that? How do you know? It, it's tough. It's tough. Well, first, it's tough for the physician to have the patient bring in all those medications because, you know, the, some patients uh, c- could carry a, 
a bag full of medications and right. they don't want to carry it around. You know, not only it's uh, it's um, annoying, but it could be uncomfortable for the patient. Um, and expensive they if they lose them. Yeah, especially if they u- lose them, imagine, or, or they could be embarrassed waiting in the waiting area with mm-hmm. a bag of medications, um, even though it's paper bag or something that's covering that it's medication, but, you know, they might feel self-conscious mm-hmm. about that. So it is difficult just to start off for them to bring it. Then once they're in, again, you know, well-med, it, it gives you ample amount of time for us to really, as a physician, to really dig in and and uh, and and go through each and every one of those medications and really discuss it with uh, with the patient and their family members. So I have no problem with it. I, I encourage it, and uh, hopefully everybody will follow it. And so do you, you have an electronic medical record? Do you have something that you record where all those medications are when, after they come flying out of the bag? Yes, absolutely. So we have a, med- a medication checklist, and uh, we have all the prescription medications on this list in this electronic medical records, which is on the computer. Uh, it's a fabulous system that, that they implemented years ago. And uh, we, uh, we are able to put in not only the prescription medications, but even over the over-the-counter medications into the system so we could have a, a clear picture of everything that that patient is taking. And I would guess when they bring that medication in, you're able to tell if they're being compliant. Are they really taking their uh, simvastatin or, or their Zocor or whatever it is? Yes, absolutely, Ron. In, in our electronic uh, medical system, it tells us when was the last time the patient actually uh, asked for the medication for a refill. So you could kind of uh, look at the bottle and say, well, this bottle is full, but you, I gave it to you two months ago and, sh- and you haven't gotten a refill. So you kind of have an idea, you know, if they are, um, you know, being compliant or taking that medication as, as indicated. We're going to follow up with that in just a moment and, and find out whether you have patients who, who you actually see that in, whether they're not taking the medication or maybe they're overtaking it. All that and more coming your way on Caregiver SOS on Air with Dr. Mario Servio. Siervo, I'm, pardon me, I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio on Caregiver SOS on Air. We are having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Mario Siervo, the d- medical director for WellMed Clinics in Miami, Florida. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And Dr. Siervo, uh, you went to medical school in Guadalajara and uh, did your residency in Florida. Is that right? Correct. So I started in Guadalajara, Mexico. It's a, it's a medical school that's affiliated with New York Medical College. So actually, it's an American school. I actually went there for three years, and then you transfer to New York, uh, and uh, you finish off your medical career there, your medical school there, and um, and then went ahead and did my residency, which is kind of uh, when you're really working at the hospital and getting your hands and and, and uh, feet uh, wet and dirty. And uh, I was there for three years for my residency in family medicine. So you've really gotten a. a- cultural perspective i mean if you've gone from mexico up to new york down to miami um you run across a lot of latino populations and but they are different are they not absolutely absolutely there's a wide range and and they all they each have their own beliefs and their own uh home remedies and and uh, it's very uh interesting and 
and uh, I love uh, listening to to each and every one of them. I mean, from the Mexican population to the Cuban population here in Miami, uh, Puerto Ricans. I mean, Latin Americans are are uh, big in this in this city and. It's just fascinating to to hear all of their stories. And you've got another neat side. Your father was Italian, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I had great food. You know, my mom was. Oh, I'm gonna go eat at his house. Yeah. I don't know. It's got to be good. Food. Yeah, when's dinner? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I uh, my mom was Cuban and my father's Italian. So our you know my dinners were delicious and and I continue to enjoy that over the weekends. Well, so I have a question for you. One of the most difficult um, issues we have running our Caregiver SOS program, which at the WellMed Charitable Foundation, that's the program where we we actually have caregiver program managers that work with family members of the patients um, in the community. It doesn't have to be a WellMed patient. But what we find, particularly in the Latino community, um, is that the word caregiver doesn't really exist in Spanish. Um, and that this idea of a caregiver being separate from being the daughter, the wife, the son, I'm a family member. I just take care of my loved one. I'm not doing anything. And they don't realize that they are playing a role as a caregiver. Absolutely. They have uh, this idea, um, right or wrong, that, hey, I'm the daughter, I'm the son, I'm the the, the nephew and and I take care of my grandmother my mother my my loved one and uh, they're really they don't consider so, themselves a caregiver that's almost like uh, this is a duty for them this is you know something that they feel very proud of and and it's very challenging at times but uh, it's a sense of uh, satisfaction to them and and their loved one and and they both feel proud of each other, you know, and, and the family members always, the patient is always uh, 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 saying great things about the family member when they come in and how much they help. And it's just, uh, it's a great relationship. So do, in your practice, do you ever run into family members where you're thinking, wow, you know, this particular loved one, I mean, this this caregiver, the person that's taking care of the, of the patient, um, they're worn out. Do you ever say, you know, have you thought about getting help? Are you getting, you know, you, are you taking care of yourself? Do you find yourself needing to address that caregiver, that family member at times? Yes, a lot of the times, you know, the family member comes in and they uh, probably look worse than the patient because they have spent so much effort and so much time, and they really want to to make everything uh, perfect for for the for the patient. And uh, a lot of them quit their jobs and dedicate themselves full time to to taking care of their loved one. And they really uh, there's there's been some some times that I've seen the person, the, the caregiver and family member, and I I tell them, hey, you need uh, some help because you need a break. Uh, you need to um, to take care of yourself because you will soon find yourself, you know, in a hospital or sick or, and you won't be able to take care of them at all. What do they so say to you? Yeah, so does it work? Do they listen? Well, <laughs> a lot of them agree, don't definitely agree with me. I don't know if they do it or not, but they definitely agree with me saying, yes, I need a break or I can't handle this. And, and uh, you know, and we try to give them as much resources as possible. And WellMed has a, a lot of resources uh, available, not only in the community but but in the organization itself for for the the caregivers for the family members and you know they just need to ask 
and uh, some of them are even embarrassed to ask because they they don't want to say hey i need help and uh, we just have to make sure that the uh, physician notices that and and brings it up to that family member so we could get them help well, I, I hope in your position as the medical director there that you can help, you know, influence all the other physicians into, and, and I'm sure that you, you know, most of the physicians do anyway, to really noticing that caregiver that's, you know, sitting in the chair against the wall and saying, how are you doing today? Because it's just so important. Absolutely, and, yes. It's yes. affirming to them, too, when you recognize their role. Yeah, and I think it's been ingrained in our in our values here in the organization that we, uh, you know, we don't just look at the patient. We look at the whole family. And, uh, you know, the, the health of the family, if there are patients or not, is still something vital for, for our success and, and for the patient's success, which is all we care for. Now, are there cultural differences that, that you see among the various populations between the uh, the Anglos who, who are living down in Miami, the Cuban-Americans, the Mexican-Americans, the Puerto Rican-Americans, how do they interact when it comes to working with a physician, being a caregiver, and all the issues that go into that? Yeah, we really have, uh, here we we see a a wide range of of ethnicities. Of course, the Latin population is is more pronounced here, but I've seen uh, seen that the um, uh, Anglos are more, the, the family member is is more, uh, you know, structured, make sure that they write everything down and everything is, you know, uh, is, is as, it, as they would like it to be. And, and they're not scared, actually, to ask for help. Um, I've seen uh, more uh, them asking for help and, uh, than, than the Latin population. The Latin population, is, they, they, it seems to me, and, and I, I could speak about this personally because my mother was taking care of, her mother, uh, she took all the burden on herself. And uh, I feel like the land population takes more of the burden on their shoulders. And, and I don't know if why they're hesitant in asking for help. Maybe uh, they feel that, that it's their job not to ask for help, that this is their, their duty. Or maybe they feel that asking for help is a sign of weakness. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but that's, that's my perception. Well, you mentioned that you oftentimes will tell the family member, "Look, you need to get some rest. You need to take care of yourself." Um, do you are you know as a physician, you probably have, are considered a figure, authority figure, someone that they should you know listen to. So, um, you know, is it different? Do you think that's where you're successful because you're the physician? Can anybody at the clinic say, "Take care of yourself," and it's going to get results? That's a great point, uh, Carol, because I feel uh, that they look at us a little differently than their own uh, uh, family members. So maybe they might, their spouse might be telling them, you need help, you need a break, you need help, and they won't listen. And then when they come to a physician and say, hey, you need help, they're more, um, they accept it more than when somebody else tells them. And, and I think it's very important that, I, that we really look out for that as a physician. We really look out for these signs that the family members might give out and really uh, uh, talk to them and make sure that their well-being is, is just as, as good as the patient. Well, we're really pleased to hear how comfortable you are having uh, the caregiver in the exam room participating uh, in that process with you as a physician. 
Thank you. Thank you, Ron. I think it's vital. Uh, I think it's uh, it's a team effort. And, uh, if, you know, our success is based on, on uh, you know, what, how they do, both of them, or, or the whole family does. And we really care for the family as a whole. It doesn't matter if we just have one patient of the family or five patients of the family. Uh, we feel here at WellMed that the whole family is our patient. So, and that's how we, that's how we act. So do you ever have a family member, you know, in advance say, excuse me, doctor, you know, when my parents come in or, or when I bring my husband in or something, do they ever, you know, give you advance notice of something they need help with from you? Like uh, maybe hinting that dad shouldn't be driving anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes. Have, yes. Carol. That happens frequently. Actually, they, you know, maybe they'll get you on the side in the hallway and say, hey, I need to talk to you, or, or they'll ask you, uh, um, you know, in, in whisper to you or, or give you a letter that they wrote. And, uh, and usually it's, it's saying things that they don't want to say in front of their loved one because uh, that loved one might get, feel offense, offense to it. They might, uh, so a lot happens on the, on the, before the actual visit. That must be why they have so many physician television shows, uh, you know, because there's so much going on with the patient, with the family, behind the scenes, at home. I mean, that's high drama, a lot going on, a lot of conflict and interaction. We've got a couple minutes left, and I'd love to hear what you say to families uh, where perhaps the caregiver, the daughter, the sister, the brother has said, you know, doctor, uh, daddy shouldn't be driving anymore. Can you help us? Mm-hmm. What do you say yeah, to them? First, I, I hope that all the family members that are listening to your show uh, really do reach out to, their, to, the, to the physician because that's the first step. And don't be embarrassed. Don't be shy. Uh, this is for their, their safety and, and, and ultimately the family member's safety. So why, what I would tell them is let me know. If the, if that patient cannot drive, and I would have that discussion. I don't want them to have that discussion. I want to have that discussion with the patient, and I think it's something that the the, the physician needs to deal with face to face with the patient. Uh, what I tell them, I tell them that it's better for their safety. I tell them that they have plenty of support. That whatever they need, they could be driven to that location, or if they need groceries, they could have the groceries delivered or have their family member bring the groceries. So anything that is that they need to do could be provided uh, either by your well-med, uh, by the community, or by their family member. It's such a loss of independence, it has to scare people. It does. It does. It's, you know, losing your license is, is uh, they feel that they're lost, they lose their independence. And right. That's what the physician, you know, it, it's very important to have that relationship with the patient because then the physician will be able to, to uh, discuss this matter since it's very delicate in more depth as long as you have that proper relationship with the patient. Well, I think you really hit it on the head there. Let the physician be the bad guy, and then the family members can wrap their arms around dad or mom and say, we are here for you, and they can continue to be the good guys. I agree. Well, you're a a delight to have on, and and if we call again, uh, can we persuade you to come back on Caregiver SOS on air? Absolutely. Absolutely, Ron and Carol. It's been my, it's been an honor and, and my pleasure. Thank you very much, Dr. Mario 
Siervo down in Miami where he is the medical director for the Wellman Clinics there. That was great. Yes, I you know I'm ready to move to Miami. I'm moving. Yeah, I'm take my parents. <laughs> yeah, you got room on your panel. We're both going to sign up with you. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. Come on down. And the weather's good, right? Oh, it's beautiful. I love that. Thank you very much. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The answer up next. Take ten. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron. A special treat at the end of each of our programs, we bring you Take 10 with our co-host Carol Zerniel and Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, a specialist in dealing with issues involving caregiving and addictions. And we're so pleased that you are with us today. Uh, Carol, you have uh, an issue that so many families face and, and really don't want to face, and that is how do you know when it's time uh, that your loved one or your care recipient really needs to be in a different setting, in a home, in an institution? Right, and and the question that I'd like to ask you, Jamie, is really from the caregiver perspective. So how does a caregiver know it's time, you know, psychologically within themselves? Uh, what's going on? What what kind of, you know, how, do we, how does a caregiver know it's time? You know, that's a great question, and I'm not sure the caregiver is in a position as much as a licensed um, physician. To, to actually know that, but they do know intuitively that their life has become pretty unmanageable and they watch their loved ones, their, the observable behavior of the loved ones, navigate themselves in their current environment and see that they're setting them up for failure if, if they see you know, ongoing consistent behavior. Uh, the decision to place your loved one in a, in a nursing home is probably one of the most difficult decisions anybody can make. And, you have to have a strong, strong connection to your family, and that's why I always say bring in a third party to put the family together in this process. Um, but always when you ask yourself, is my loved one ready for a nursing home, look for the proper strategy. Do not go in like a bull in a china shop. Well, I, you know, the first thing you said is really important, that you it would be great to consult with your primary care physician, uh, you know, to make sure that you had your loved one worked up uh, and that the physician is in agreement that this, you know, the problems that are going on are not reversible. And it's more than you can do. And, it, and that it's more that you can do, you know, and, and a lot of times the physician can really 
ease your mind and say, no, you're not imagining it. No, you're not giving up. No, this is a very difficult situation. And other people in your position, I as a physician would recommend you go ahead and place. Well, and absolutely, and and I think a real important issue, too, is that because you're going from the medical side, as I am as well here on determination, um, it's important that if your loved one has a lot of confusion and a lot of uh, memory lapses, um, that they're also not going to be compliant probably on the medications that the physician is offering them. And we don't know actually the underpinning of of how the family acts as caregivers. Uh, If you don't have home health, some people don't have enough money to have home health. But the issue is clear. If your loved one needs medications to have a good quality life and to, to thrive no matter what it is and they have these lapses of memory or confusion and they don't take it, um, that's a pretty good sign, a, you know, a red flag for somebody to say, probably let's get this person, my loved one, in a supportive environment that they can actually be compliant with their medication. Well, let me ask a question on this. So what about a caregiver that maybe the loved one is, is really not that bad off, but the caregiver is is burnt out, stressed out, angry all the time, hit the wall? I mean, is it possible that we need to think about an alternative living situation Um, when the caregiver has really psychologically, emotionally given all that they have? No doubt. I I, I agree. Um, But I I would always caution um, to put an intervening or intermittent step, a lily pad in there, uh, just because the caregiver is burned out, which many caregivers get, does not necessarily constitute clinical criteria. Um, What I would do uh, before that, and, of course, if, again, these particular issues uh, somebody does not have family this is uh, doesn't apply but if you're that burned out you need to get a third party a geriatric care manager a social worker you need to get your entire family around them a, a, a group here if you will um, and you have to tell them not necessarily put your loved one straight into a nursing home or assisted living facility you have to tell your family exactly how you feel that you cannot continue like this you're overwhelmed and before we put mom, dad, brother, sister in a home, um, is there another alternative? Uh, if, if again, as you said, that she's not she's not doing well. Forgive me. Well, and and that I think you you've made another important point um, is that sometimes the care we as caregivers are reluctant to let others know how badly that we are struggling, um, and so the other family members don't realize that we can't go on the way things are and that we're going to make that decision, Ron. Let me remind folks, they're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Take 10 with Carol Zerniel, Dr. Jamie Heisman, and me, Ron Aaron. Uh, In that same context of what you're saying, Carol, you then have the additional hurdle in some families where uh, the caregiver, the loved one, has promised dad, mom, we will never put you in in a home. Yep. Happens that's all the death. time. Right, Ron? Pardon me? That's a kiss of death. That's expectations yeah. becoming the right. seeds of resentment, and so many families do right. that. Right, but so many families do it because at the time they say it, they mean it. Right. But, uh, Carol, to this point, and I think you could probably talk about it well since you're the executive director of the, of the foundation that does Caregiver SOS, you know, for me, if I'm looking at a loved one and they they, they have very poor social connections or social or relationships they uh, they need support physically they're not having fun they're sitting there you know, on a couch watching tv all day um, that obviously is a time to start contemplating 
if an environment like an assisted living facility or skilled nursing that has social components and ways for a loved one to connect should be brought in. Well, and, and I, another point I think that I would add is that if a caregiver is really, you know, stressed out, hit the wall, um, there are, you know, there are respite services available. So you were talking about a lily pad and sort of an interim step, and that might be to, you know, a lot of facilities, you know, there's paperwork involved, will let you have respite for a week, two weeks, a month, something like that, uh, where it's not a permanent placement, but it gives you some time off away from the 24-7. For people who don't know adult daycare, there are wonderful adult daycare programs that can provide respite where your loved one, if they're capable, um, you know, functioning enough, they can go to a facility during a day with activities and lunch, and it's very structured. Now, is that something that AAA Area Agency on Aging can help you find? The Area Agency on Aging can help you find respite in your area, You know, including having a home health agency maybe send an aide into your home to watch your loved one while you go uh, take a nap, watch a movie, read a book. So if you don't know what an area agency on aging is, it's, you know, and all the United States has it covered with area agencies on aging. <laughs> they're like everywhere. They're like everywhere. It's 600 of them. Um, and uh, you can go to eldercare.gov. It's a government website. Plug in your zip code, and it will connect you to your closest area agency on aging. That's good advice. Dr. Jamie, this has got to be such a typical problem in so many families, though. It's incredibly difficult. In fact, uh, Ron, as a clinician, the last interventions when I had my private practice, um, and and it was booming, actually, the the last interventions I did were not with drug and alcohol cases. The last interventions I did was when caregivers would call me up to do an intervention to get mom or dad into an assisted living or skilled nursing. Um, and there are clinical means of how to do that in a very dignified, respectful way. So give us an example. What does that mean, that you, you're working with the loved one that was maybe wasn't ready to go? Well, exactly. Here's the deal. With the drug and alcohol interventions, we all know that. We've seen it on TV. We've seen the intervention in the television show. You put observable behavior. You put the consequences together. You pack somebody's bags. You take them away to treatment. You don't do that with a loved one going to assisted facility. It's important to get the entire family together and what I call peel them one person at a time off their loved one, um, giving them assurances, let's say, that I'm going to be okay that, Mom, uh, I'm burned out, and I'm going to get therapy, um, and you, you, you know, are going, uh, we've got a great place for you to look at. It's what I call the family intervention, and it really is a loving, loving process, and it just gets the person the ability to go in and look at, the, look at facilities. I do believe, if you're a caregiver listening to this, do not, do not do this unilaterally on your own, if your loved one can cognitively handle it, make sure they're part of the selection process. Yeah, and that's huge. You do want to you know, show them a few different places possibly that if there's a choice involved, um, let them take a tour and maybe try it out again with the respite before you make a permanent placement, uh, you know, test it before you buy it. Test drive. Test drive the facility, you know, my, uh, I my great aunt would say definitely do that. I remember my mother's comment when she went into an assisted living facility. She said, "Ronnie, they're all old people here." She may have been correct. She probably was. Doctor Jamie, uh, sorry you're not feeling well. We're going to let you go. Sitting under a vaporizer. We'll talk to you soon. I'll get a vaporizer right now. Thank you both.
Take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Jamie Heisman, who is our uh, specialist on Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on Air, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We'll catch you again next Sunday at 5 in the afternoon on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer.